Good morning. I have been out of sorts all morning, and even now I can't seem to get it all together. So we're continuing with the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 6. We're now going to be looking at the miracle of Jesus walking on the water after he's just fed the 5,000. You know, John's continuing on with this idea of just how great Jesus is in comparison to Moses. And by God's mercy and grace, I'll be able to draw that out and help you see it over the course of the next several minutes. So let's begin by looking at John chapter 6, verses 15 through 21 from the 6th chapter, and Tom's going to read it for us. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Thanks, Tom. Let's pray. O Lord, We ask that in this hour that we look into these words, this stunning, this almost hard to believe event that you have done, as we look into this, that our eyes would see you in your glory, that we would understand you more fully as a result of letting your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts and our minds and our souls to the realities and the truths that this amazing, stunning hard-to-believe event brings forth about who you are and what your purposes are. And we ask, Father, that you would just pour out your Spirit here to do this amazing work of transforming our hearts and drawing us into you. That each and every one of us, Lord, would hear what we need to hear because of where we are in this moment about you walking on water. And I ask, Father, that you would amaze us with who you are, not with the gift of walking on water, and that we would see you and know you and love you even more because of what you show us in this miraculous work. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So here we are. Jesus has fed the 5,000 with this miraculous feeding of just five little barley loaves and two little fish. And he feeds this multitude of 7, 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people with this miraculous feeding. And you have all these baskets left over. And as a result of all this, the people are just, as you can imagine, they're just wild and awed at this miraculous work that Jesus has done by feeding everyone with just such a small little basket of food. And as a result, they want to make him king. And John records 
which is very fascinating because this event is in Mark and Luke and only John records here verse 15 where he says that perceiving Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew by himself into the mountain. But this is not all that surprising that John would bring this out because John often is portraying Jesus as someone who knows and understands the hearts of men, which in and of itself is just another unbelievable, almost hard to believe fact. Jesus can read the hearts of men. I can't even read my own heart, let alone somebody else's. At least I can't read it accurately and truthfully because my heart wants to hide itself from what it's doing and what it's feeling. It wants to hide it from me because it wants to hide it from everybody else. But yet Jesus not only has the ability to know what men's hearts are, but how to respond to it. I don't know. Have you ever thought about this? Put yourself in Jesus' sandals. You've just done this amazing miracle. God has orchestrated a miraculous miracle through you to feed these 5,000 men, maybe seven to 10,000 people total. And the people go, you're amazing. We want you to be our king. Oh, you want me to be your king? You mean like sit on a throne, wear a crown, be called the king of whatever? How would you respond? What would you do? I don't know. It'd be kind of hard for me to say no. Well, when I was younger, it would have been hard to say no. Right? Now that I'm older, it'd be easy to say no. No, thank you. That's very gracious. I appreciate the offer. I don't want to be your king. Because I've seen what you're like. I've seen what you people are like. I don't want to be your king. But the headiness, right? I remember the story, Teddy Roosevelt, as he was serving as the governor of New York, sitting in his governor's chair. And of course, he was a bright, shining political star on the American landscape in the, at the turn of the 20th century. And as he's serving as the governor, there's already chatter going on about him becoming a, the next president of the United States in, in the early 20s. And someone comes in and says to Teddy Roosevelt, you know, you are the one to be the next president of the United States. And Teddy Roosevelt is said to have responded to them, don't ever say that to me again because it's way too prideful to think about it at this point. Or not exactly those words, but something along those lines. He recognized the, the seductive allure of the idea that he could become the next president of the United States and how it would start to engulf his mind and his heart to the point that that's what all he would, he would obsess on that subject and on that idea and forget to do the things that has made him somebody they want to be president, which is governing in a good way. The allure of power just never seems to wane on the hearts of men. It's something that Tolkien is alluding to in his series on the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit about how 
alluring the the idea of power is and the one ring that rules them all and the idea that I can have that ring, whether it's a seal deer or whether it's the little hobbit. And here Jesus is faced with that same temptation. We think about Jesus' temptations often in the context of in the desert with Satan and the temptation to feed himself the temptation to have worship, the temptation to miraculously you know, reveal himself to mankind by throwing himself off the temple and letting the angels save him. But in reality, is, while those were really real temptations, the truth is every miracle was a temptation. Every miracle created in itself the temptation of doing something else of, hey, they want to make me king. Why not? That's why I'm here anyway. But he realized that a kingdom that they were offering him wasn't the kingdom that he was there for. But nonetheless, this allure of power and getting it easy and quick wasn't enough to draw Jesus into the trap. And so he disperses the crowd and sends them all away and goes off by himself to get away from the crowd and to dissipate this crazy idea they've got that they want to make him king. But then just think about it with the disciples. Put yourself in their sandals. It's not hard to imagine the mindset of the disciples. I mean, Jesus just performed this miraculous feeding only a few hours ago. They're probably still amazed and now they're anticipating great things. Hey, did you hear that crowd wanted to make him king? This is, this is all going exactly according to plan. This is just fantastic. It's exactly, it's happening exactly the way we thought it would or hoped it would. You can almost imagine and hear those conversations. This is all working out just exactly the way we were hoping. Jesus is on his way to kingship. He's on his way to taking the throne. I don't know why he dismissed the crowd. We had momentum. Right? You can imagine some campaign advisor to Jesus. We've got momentum now, Jesus. We need to capitalize on this. No, we need to disperse the crowd and send them home. And the disciples are like, wow, this is fantastic. Things are going exactly according to plan. And okay, so Jesus wants us to go the other side. Well, of course, that makes more sense. We should be on the other side when he initiates his campaign to ascend to the throne. We don't want to be on this side of the lake. We need to be on that side. So this makes perfect sense. Let's go over there. Of course, he would send us over there. So they get in the boat with all this expectation and anticipation while still genuinely being amazed and wild at the miraculous feeding. But reality happens. Have you ever noticed? We've all experienced this, haven't we? All the excitement and anticipation of something fantastic occurring and the thinking that, okay, now we're really moving forward. And, oh no, reality hits us like a two by four across the face. And so the disciples get into this boat to head across the lake They only need to go six or seven miles total, probably. Not very far. And hey, Peter and James and John and Andrew have rowed these boats across this portion of the lake 
a hundred times. You can imagine some of the other disciples like Matthew and Judas saying, hey, we can just relax. There's nothing to be worried about. I know it's dark and it's hard to navigate across a body of water in the dark. But these guys, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they've done it all their lives navigating across this part of the lake in the dark. It's no problem at all. They'll have it easy. And then what was easy suddenly turns into something horrifically hard and downright frightening. Because they get started across the sea and they get probably three, maybe four miles out away from shore. And when you look at the orientation of the Sea of Galilee and where they were probably coming from and where they're headed towards Capernaum and the way that the lake is shaped, once they get about three to four miles from where they started, they are three to four miles from any place. They're in the most center part, more than likely, of the portion of the lake they're crossing. It's like there's no place close. It's just as far to go forward to Capernaum as it is to turn around and try to go back to the place where they were or to try to go north to the northern shore. That's another three or four months. There's no good choice here. There's no good choice when you're three to four miles out and this storm is erupted into a, what must have felt like to them, a hurricane on the ocean. I've never had the privilege of being on a boat in the ocean during a typhoon or a hurricane. But from those who have, I've heard it described as very frightening. A friend of mine who was on the Navy was on a destroyer crossing from Europe back to the U.S. when they got caught into a hurricane on that destroyer. And the boat's doing this. And he's an engineer. Well, he was... He was an engineer at the time. He was still an enlisted member of the Navy. But he understood that the boat can do this and the boat can do that. But if the boat does this, it's going all the way over. Right? There's a roll limit. And he knows where that limit is. And he knows that they're, the entire time, they're, they're right on the edge. Just another degree or two and it's going all the way over. This had to be the experience that the disciples were experiencing during this storm, we're right on the edge. Another wave like that or one bigger than that, and we're going to be past the tipping point and we're going over. In fact, it was probably those guys familiar with the ocean or with the sea and the Sea of Galilee, they were probably the ones the most frightened because they realized how serious this was. If there's such a thing as being more frightened than the person who thinks they're going to die. But that's just from the storm itself. Yet Luke, Mark, and John all record how frightened the disciples were when they see Jesus walking on the water. At some point, Jesus decides he needs to come and start walking to the other side of the lake where he's supposed to meet them. Okay, wait a minute. Just think about that for a second. Jesus decides it's time for him to head from where he was to the other side of the lake where he's supposed to meet the disciples. But he's not thinking about getting in a boat and crossing in a boat. He's just going to walk. What, what kind of person thinks about just, oh, I'll just walk across the lake? Where does that come from? I mean, that's just, 
How do you reach a point in your mind and say, well, I'll just walk across the lake. Oh, I need to get to the other side. I'll just walk across it. Well, wait a minute. There's not like a, there's not like a giant long two by six across the lake that you can just walk on. Jesus is just like, I'll just walk across the lake. And so he starts walking across the lake. I don't know which is more stunning. That he just thinks I'll walk across the lake or that he actually does. So he starts walking. And who, if you even think you can walk on water, why would you try to walk on water in the middle of a hurricane? Let's just wait till the storm is over and then walk across the lake. No, no, not Jesus. The hurricane is just an inconvenience to Jesus. It just means I got to walk harder because I had to go up and down the hills of the waves like I was going up and down the hills on the train. I don't know, how does a person even think like this? Jesus' level of thinking is so far beyond. How does he even think like this? I don't know how he thinks like that. I can't think like this. But he starts walking across the water. And then the disciples see him. And the disciples think, that's a ghost. Now, they've seen a lot of Jesus. Why would they think that this Jesus that they've seen so often walking around the water is a ghost? Well, maybe it was because it's not normal for people to walk on the water. They've probably never seen that before. And Mark records that Jesus actually never intended to go to the disciples in the boat. He was actually just going to walk past them and get onto the other side of the lake and be standing there on the beach when they arrived to that side of the lake. What? He was actually just going to keep walking. He wasn't even planning to get in the boat with them. Well, I guess if you can walk on the water, I don't guess you need to get in the boat for any reason either. You just keep walking. But then the disciples see him and they think he's a ghost. And they're frightened. I mean, all the gospel writers who record this event of Jesus walking on the water make it clear that they are frightened because they think that Jesus is a ghost or a spirit of some kind. What's up with that? Where does that come from? Well, in Jesus' time, people believed in what was called night spirits. These were spirits of persons who had drowned in a body of water. And these individuals, their spirit or their ghost, as we would think of it, would come to life at night and be on the water so that if you were out on the water at night, you would see their ghost. And there was probably also some some attachment to this mythology of if they drowned in a storm, then you would see their ghost during a storm. But irregardless of the condition, the fact that this was a night spirit on the water, they were always perceived as dangerous spirits that could lead to death in the water for those who were seeing them. They were like an omen of sorts. Oh, oh, do you see that? I don't see nothing. I ain't looking and I don't want to look. What do you think you see? I see a ghost. No, 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 we're not looking because you know what it means if we see a ghost on the water. It means one of us is going to die. And they think Jesus is a night spirit. They're absolutely convinced in the horror and fright of this storm and everything that's happening to them. Oh, great. 
We're trying to keep ourselves alive and now there's a night spirit right there in front of us. They were convinced they were going to die. That's the only thing you could conclude. If you were one of them living in that time with these views and beliefs about night spirits and you're on the lake in the middle of this big gigantic storm that feels like a hurricane and you see a night spirit, we're, that's it, we're toast. We're all going to die. That's the only thing you're left with. But it wasn't a ghost. It was Jesus. It was Jesus walking to them over the water. Jesus displays his mastery and control over nature, including walking on water. And according to Mark, he causes the sea to be completely calm as soon as he gets into the boat. Which is stunning and shocking by itself. But then John records something that nobody else does which is once Jesus got into the boat, it was instantly at the intended landing spot on the other side of the lake. So Jesus' control and mastery over all of nature is that he can walk on water, he can make the seas completely calm and the storm just completely stop at the snap of a finger, and at the same snap of a finger, the boat miraculously moves three to four miles all the way to the other side of the lake. Have you been visiting any of those places in Denver with the green crosses on them, John? Do you realize how ridiculous you sound telling this story, John? There is no such thing as the kind of miraculous events. You clearly were hallucinating and imagining things in the middle of your fright over this storm. And you just passed out. And then when you woke up, the storm had stopped and the boat had just drifted right up the three to four miles onto the beach where you were supposed to be. You just got lucky. You just got lucky, John. Come on, you don't really expect us to believe this. But John does expect us to believe it. John's not out to tell entertaining stories. John is out to proclaim the majesty, the might, the power, and the glory of Jesus Christ. And this story displays his majesty, his power, his might, and his glory because he is the ruler over all things. There is nothing that is not under his authority and control. Even nature and physics are under his control. But John's kind of sticking with this theme that Jesus is greater than Moses. So how does this whole walking on water thing have anything to do with Moses? How in the world are we supposed to get a clue that this is somehow connected to Moses? What does it have to do with Moses and the Passover? Well, for that, we have to turn to Exodus chapter 14. So turning your Bibles with me backwards to Exodus chapter 14. And we'll start with verse 15 in chapter 14. So 14, 15, right? That's easy to remember. Chapter 14, verse 15. We're going to start there. I guess if you're one of those people that like to mark things in your Bible, you could go into the margin here beside this Jesus walks on water section and write in Exodus chapter 14, 15 through 22. If you wanted to, I might encourage you to do that. 
So here's what Moses records in Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Right, they've been down by the edge of the Red Sea. They've been hanging out there. Pharaoh and the people have decided we were stupid to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh sends his army out after them. And now they're there. They're trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And they're like, oh no, what are we going to do? And Moses says, Lord, what are we going to do? And the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. What are you talking about, God? You want me to go forward? There is this big thing called this Red Sea right in front of me. What do you expect me to do? Well, here's what I expect you to do. Verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then in verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and a pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground with the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the connection to Passover, as John points out at the beginning of chapter six, that this is Passover time and Moses and and the Exodus at Passover is now the Israelites miraculously walk on dry ground as they cross through the Red Sea with the two walls of water on both sides. What does Moses do when he has to cross the sea? He just parts the waters and walks on dry ground. What does Jesus do when he needs to cross the sea? Part the waters and walk on the dry lake bed? That is so Old Testament. We don't do that in this era. This is the New Testament era. We just walk across the water. Watch me. Moses, the best Moses could do is part the waters and walk on dry ground. The best that Jesus can do is just walk on the water. Why waste your energy parting the waters when you can just walk across it on top of it? Jesus is greater than Moses because he doesn't need to part the waters. He just walks on it like it's dry ground. He literally, he walks on the water as if it was dry ground. Who can do such a thing? Who can do such a thing as just walking on the water like it's dry ground? Jesus is God. He is displaying his divinity by the very fact he walks on the water instead of having to part it and walk on the dry ground. Who can walk on the water like it is dry ground? God is the only person. If only we had a piece of scripture to validate that statement. 
Well, guess what? We do. Job chapter 9. Turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 9, starting with verse 5. Here, Job is responding to Bildad. Bilhah was the servant of Leah who was became one of Jacob's wives. And Bildad was the unkind friend responding to Job or telling Job things when he was in his misery. So here in chapter 9, we hear Job responding to Bildad. And we're going to pick up with verse 5 of Job chapter 9. Job is referring to God. Who can do these kind of things? Nobody but God can do what I'm about to say and do these things. He, God, who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea. God is the one who tramples on the waves of the sea. That's what Job tells us. He describes the kind of things that God can do. Of course, when Job says this, people are thinking this is metaphorical wording. No one for a moment thought he was being literal. Except then Jesus does it. He trampled on the waves of the sea. However, John's first readers would have been familiar with, especially John's first readers, having written it around 90 AD, primarily to the Gentile church in Ephesus. Those first readers, they would not really have been familiar with the Hebrew Bible and the way, and when we read Job chapter 9, we're reading the translation of the original Hebrew. But for those guys in the first century, when they read this, they would not have recognized the Hebrew translation like we just read they would have been reading from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They would have been reading this, and even the disciples would have been familiar with both the Septuagint and the Hebrew Bible. And this is the version, this is the way the Septuagint reads verse, chapter, uh, verse 8 out of Job 9. Who alone has stretched out the heavens and walks on the sea as on firm ground? Walks on the sea as on firm ground. Job 9, 8 tells us that one characteristic that defines who God is is he walks on the sea as though it is on firm ground. And now Jesus has walked on the sea as though it was firm ground. Now, Jesus' statement back in chapter 6 there where they cry out to him and he says, it is I, do not be afraid. That phrase, it is I, now takes on a different meaning when we understand Job 9.8 because that phrase in the original could also be, tra be translated, I am. He could have responded or it could have been translated as, he said to them, I am, do not be afraid. Now, of course, in English, it doesn't make sense to say that. But I don't think it's a coincidence. And this is probably the 
possibility of translating it as I am is probably an allusion to what is about Jesus is about to say next in starting in verse 22, which we'll get to next week when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. John's even setting us up for that I am statement here in verse 20 when he says, it is I, which could be translated I am, do not be afraid. Knowing that they're going to remember, if they don't remember it in the moment of the storm right there of Job chapter 9 verse 8, they will eventually make that connection back to Job chapter 9 verse 8 that Jesus has to be God because he trampled on the waves of the sea as though they were firm ground. (sighs) Wow. I don't know about you, but this is like a little overwhelming. Can I just like, I need a couple of minutes to absorb this. This is just, well, okay. But now we're left with that inevitable question that always arises, no matter how dramatic or stunning our discoveries in Scripture are. So what? So what? Jesus walked on the water. So what? I still got to go home and pay bills. So what? Well, last week we saw Jesus was, was an amazing miracle worker. He feeds this tremendous, this tremendous multitude out in the, in the wilderness. And he's an amazing miracle worker. And he's still a miracle worker for us today. But now we see him as God himself. You, you can sort of get away with he's an amazing miracle worker from last week's looking at the feeding of the 5,000. But this week, when we look at him walking on the water, you just can't like sugarcoat that one with he's an amazing miracle worker too. No. No, he's only God can walk on water. So he's God himself. Do you see him as God? He is God. Do you see him as God? It doesn't matter how many bills I got to pay when I get home. I still have to deal with that question. Do I see him as God? Secondly, Jesus still knows the heart of men today, just like he did at the beginning of this story, with knowing that they wanted to make him king. And because he still knows the hearts of men today, that means he knows your heart and mine. Ugh, really? Ugh. I'm really trying to keep my heart hidden and certainly what's in it hidden, but he still knows it anyway. At least he saw them face to face and you could say, well, he could read their hearts because he saw them face to face, right? And so he can't see me face to face. We're not in person right now like he was with them. So I'm, I'm, cl- I'm safe. No, that doesn't work either. He knows our hearts. He knows the things we're hiding. Things that we are hiding out of shame and things that we're hiding out of hurt and fear. He knows, he knows what's going on inside of you 
your mind, your heart, and your soul. And he loves you enough to come to you, even if he has to walk across the lake to get to you. Is he your King Jesus? The crowd wanted to make Jesus their political king. They wanted to put a crown on his head, a dinky little crown, and put him on a cheap wooden chair and call him the king of Israel. But Jesus was not satisfied with a kingdom that small. Why should he? Jesus is more than the king of heaven. He is the king of his people's hearts and minds. He is the king of the universe and of all things. Why should he accept something as dinky as the king of a little bitty place called Israel that takes up less landmass than the state of New Jersey? Why should he be satisfied with anything less than the kingship of our entire personhood, our hearts, our souls, and our minds? And why would we want anyone else to be the king of our hearts? I mean, I'd kind of prefer to be my king, me be my own king. Well, that really hadn't been so good, such a good thing over the past couple of decades. Well, several decades. Okay, many decades. <laughs> you just won't let me live in the fantasy that I'm still in my 20s. I haven't been, you know, my rule as kingship of my heart has not gone well. It looks like something from one of the Old Testament kings instead of something from the reign of David and Solomon. So why would I want to, at this point in my life, I should want to give up the kingship of my heart because it's such a mess and made such a mess of it and happily let Jesus be king of my heart. But the heart wants what the heart wants. And I know that Letting him be king means he's going to want to rule things the way he thinks it should be ruled, which is really good for me. But that's not what I always want. It's not what we want at times. And so there's this, there's this fight, this war in, inside our hearts between letting him be king and have his rule for our good and us being our own king for what we think is our own good. But the reality is there'll never be peace within our hearts until Jesus is king of our hearts. His desire is to be the king of all our hearts, both all of us individually and all of us as a church community and family. The king of our corporate heart. And will we let him be the king? It's a question that each of us, I can't answer it for you. I wish I could. I wish I could answer it for myself. Like, make the decision, I'm going to make him king of my heart, and it's like, done, never try to take it back. But I do. And yet, even still, when I come to the realization, oh, shoot, I took the kingship back, didn't I? Oh, look at the mess I made. Hey, Jesus, could you could I, could I give this back to you? Like now that I've made a mess of it, can I give it back? Yes. I've been waiting for you to give it back. 
Now watch what I do. Watch how my glory shines now that you've given this mess back to me. And then we get to watch him do the amazing things of redemption and restoration. And the mess we've made turns into this gloriously beautiful thing because we gave him back the kingship. And he just keeps taking it back. And he just keeps making a gloriously beautiful thing from it. I understand sometimes I kind of feel for the antinomians that Paul's talking about in Romans when he says, you know, should we go on sinning so that God's glory will abound more and more? Well, it just seems like every time I screw things up, he makes it thing, he just really glorifies his name quite a bit when I give it back to him in a big mess and he fixes it and makes it all nice and beautiful again. So maybe I should just like set a date every Monday, make a big mess and give it back to Jesus. But that's not what he wants from us, right? He really wants us to to walk with him and not ever take it back and live with him. In essence, that's really right. It'd be the fair question to ask at this moment is, well, what does it mean to let him be the king of my heart? It just means walking with Jesus and being content with that, going where he takes us, walking with him where he sends us to go and and just living life with Jesus. And so that's 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 where I'm that's where I'm trying to to bring you know, trying to draw you into and bring you to this morning as we get closer and closer to the celebration of Resurrection Sunday that let's just walk with Jesus. Let's let him be king and walk with him and if it happens to be on a rocky road or across a body of water okay we'll just go with him wherever we'll, we'll go with it wherever Jesus wants to go with this we'll just go with it and be okay with that. That's my encouragement to you. As we walk through these next several weeks with whatever they're going to bring, we just go with it because that's where Jesus is taking us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this amazing gift. This amazing gift of seeing you, who you are through walking on water and this amazing gift of the joy it comes from letting you be the king of our hearts and the king of our lives. And I pray, Lord, that that we would really be a people that both individually and corporately as a church, we just we just walk with you wherever you're taking us. And if it ends up to be an unpleasant road, we just go with it because we know that we can trust you. And I ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.